0: is once you've been born again, once you've adopted this new identity that Peter talks about there in chapter 2, verse 9, you're you're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're a people belonging to God. Once once that's happened to your life, then the, the real challenging question becomes, how then do I live in this world? I was in this world, but I had this life transformation. I've been born again. I'm a part of this new identity, but I'm still in this world. I haven't also been transported to heaven, so I'm, I'm sort of stuck, so to speak, in this world. I would say you're, you're placed in this world in a new way, but then you have to decide, well, how then do I live in this context, in this cultural context? Do you, you and I live as aliens or natives are we exiles or are we integrated are we sojourners are we citizens of this world and there's there's a tension all the way through the New Testament between these two impulses and you see it in a number of different places Uh, Probably the place you're most familiar with is uh, Jesus's prayer for his disciples. in John 17 He's in the upper room and he has this what's called the high priestly prayer. It's John 17 is just one long prayer and he prays for his disciples saying this to God. My prayer is not that you take them, the disciples, out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So these verses are where we get the, the pretty often heard saying, be in the world, but not of the world, you see that tension. Jesus understands. He's sending his disciples, who are really not of the world, but He is sending them into the world. And there's going to be a tension of how do you live in this world and yet you don't live of the world. Paul says this in Romans 12:2. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transfer trans um, transformed. Thank you. Not transfer, transform in the renewing of your mind. So so you're not supposed to conform any longer to the patterns of this world, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12. So there's nonconformity, yet he says in 1 Corinthians 9, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. So you're not supposed to conform, and yet in the world you're supposed to conform in all possible ways, so you might... When some, so there's a nonconformity and then there's a there's an adaptation to the culture. So Jesus sees that tension. Paul sees the tension and you see some of that tension here just in our text. Verse 11, Peter says, live as, as sojourners or foreigners or exiles. There's a separation from the culture. Yet, verse 12 Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. See, there's a, there's a separation, but then you're supposed to live in the Gentile world in such a way that they can see you and they can say, I've seen this person close enough to know that their character is honorable. These two impulses are always in tension with each other, and it's a great challenge to find the, the biblical balance. And Andrew Walls understood this in his book, The Missionary Movement in Christian History. So he's talking about how missions moves across cultures. And he says this, we call these two impulses, the indigenous principle and the pilgrim principle. The gospel must become indigenous in every culture in the world. It must find a home in the culture. It must fit in. That's the indigenous impulse. Yet at the same time, and just as powerful, the gospel produces a pilgrim mindset it loosens people from their culture it criticizes and corrects the culture it, it turns people into pilgrims and aliens and exiles in their own culture so be in the world yet not of the world do not conform yet become all things live as exiles yet live among the people the tension between these impulses is pervasive jesus you remember he he experiences this tension from the from the culture that he's in He's the the chosen one. He's the holy one. He's the prophet. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. And so he enters into this world. And you remember in Luke chapter seven, he's he's been invited over to a dinner party with pastors and the pastors are all there. And Jesus is there at this dinner party and a prostitute, a woman, crashes the dinner party. And she begins to wash Jesus's feet. And the pastors in the room say, this man is a prophet. And if he's a prophet, he knows this woman's reputation. Why is he not separating himself from her? He felt that tension. A few chapters later, Luke, remember the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus breaks all social norms and invites himself over for dinner. Hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your dinner tonight. Okay. So he goes to have dinner with Zacchaeus, who's the worst person in town, and Zacchaeus invites his friends who are all the worst persons in town. And so he's at Jesus is at the home with the worst people in town. And the religious people are outside. And you want know what they're saying? How is it possible that he could eat dinner with those people? You see, there's a tension. Where is the separation? Where is the participation? It's not it's not an easy thing to navigate. You and I experience these tensions all the time. How am I supposed to feel to engage in or feel about politics? I mean, you felt that tension, didn't you, just the last few weeks? What's what's the right level of being involved with it? How much should I say? How much should I be involved with it? How much should I not not really give much credence to some followers of Christ cheer when the Democrats win? Some followers of Christ cheer when the Republicans win. Some followers don't cheer ever about that. I mean, which way is the right way to navigate that situation? What are the boundaries concerning fashion, entertainment, technology, social media? You face that tension, don't you? All the time. What's the right way? Where, where can I be engaged? Where, where do I have to have separation? Where's the level of participation? Where's the level of, of not being conformed to the world? Is Google a good thing? Or according to this guy named Nicholas Carr, who wrote a popular article in the, the magazine, the Atlantic magazine, title of his article has Google made us stupid and it had an interesting premise it's it's Google has provided information but it hasn't defi- it hasn't provided any discernment and he's saying discernment's a lot more valuable than information and so yes, you have a lot more information, but you have less discernment so is it possible that your engagement in some area of the media of the world is actually not beneficial. Is Facebook valuable? It keeps you connected to your family and friends? Or does it foster narcissism and erode your ability to communicate face to face? I mean, you feel that tension, don't you? All the, I mean, everywhere you go, there's this tension of where is the right place for me to be engaged? Where is the place for me not to be engaged? What about money and materialism? How much is too much? How big is too big? How about education and exposure? How, how about that concerning the ways of the world? How, how much should I know about that? And that's a tension for you, but you have kids, it's bigger ch- tension. How should I educate my kids about the world? What, what level of participation should they and have knowledge of or be involved with it? Should, should they have a lot or a little? And then how do I navigate that for them? Those are tensions that everybody has to wrestle with. And so I don't know about you, but sometimes it feels like I live my life in that tension. <laughs> I mean, whether it's just wave after wave of sort of ordinary decisions or people come to me with a complex situation and I, and I just can't go right to the Bible and say, see, that's it's just right there in the Phillips translation. It just doesn't work always quite that simply. And so you have to exercise some wisdom. You have to exercise some discernment. And my question this morning is how do we navigate between those two impulses, sojourners or citizens? And it's a huge question that I couldn't possibly unpack all of today and it should provide plenty of lunchtime conversation about how does that work in our own lives how should it be working but i think peter in his verses here provides three points of light in which we can navigate by and the first one is preparation i'm going to use chapter 1 verse 13 for that there's preparation chapter 2 verse 11 there's separation And then chapter 2, verse 12, there's participation. So those are the three lights. This isn't the only way you could navigate this road, but I think this might be helpful from our teacher, our pastor this morning, from Peter. There's preparation, there's separation, and there's participation. Maybe those three things can help you navigate some decisions as you face this week. First, preparation. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, now that you know everything about the gospel or you, you, you understand the gospel, one through twelve, therefore, now you've got to prepare your minds for action. We've talked about this a couple of times. The, the picture prepare is the, the girding up of your loins. Remember that in the New Testament, everybody's wearing a robe. And so when you need to take action, especially in warfare, you know, all this extra material is not helpful. So he's saying you've got to pick up all this extra material that may have served a purpose at some point, but we've got to tuck that into the belt. And so we've got so we have a a way to move forward. And now Peter is using that same picture to say, you know, you used to live in this kind of world over here, but now there's a, a war for your soul, Peter says. There, There is a war for your soul. And now all this extra material that you thought was useful or helpful, we, we've got to discard that. We've got to get rid of that because we've got to prepare for action. And so he helps us understand how, how do we prepare our minds for action? We're, we're going to have to get rid of some of this old and unnecessary clutter in our minds. Preparing your minds requires... Humility. And I say that by looking at verse 14. Just look at that with me. Chapter one, verse 14. As obedient children. See, now you're a child of God. Do not be conformed. Same idea that Paul talks about in Romans to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't be conformed to the passions of your your former ignorance. The, the main reason we need to renovate our minds is because we formerly lived in ignorance this former ignorance infected every every room of our lives. And so this former ignorance caused us to be blinded to truth. And we're enslaved by a host of our desires, fears, feelings, bad information, family momentum, half-truths, lies. See, these are the things that we're... Infecting the rooms of our mind, we lived in this former ignorance. And so we really lived our lives according to this half truth. We we really lived our lives from this family momentum that was carrying us into the future. We really lived our lives out of fear. And so we've got to prepare our minds to understand that we lived in this. Former ignorance, Paul says this in Ephesians 4, you must no longer live as you used to in the futility of your thinking. See, it begins with your mind, darkened in your understanding, having lost all sensitivity and corrupted by deceitful desires. See, when, when I was just trying to think of this Peter and Paul image that you have this former ignorance, you have this deceitful desires The picture that came to my mind was um, and I must have either had an overactive imagination or I was remembering some horror movie or a bad dream. But, you know, when you get into a dream, it's all distorted. It seems real. But then you're you're just suddenly in different places and just it's, it's weird. And so I imagine you're 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 desperately trying to escape from this old, dark, creaky house and you're walking down the hallway and you just know one of these doors is the way to freedom. And so you open the first door and it's just a brick wall and you close out when you go to the next door and it's like outer space. You know, you almost fall out like, well, that's not the right door. And then you go to the next door and you open It's another door and you open It's another door. and you so open. It's another. It's never ending. You go to the next door and just garbage falls out. You can't possibly go through the door. Everywhere you go. This is what I think about during the week. See, that's, that's like the, the compartments of your mind. Every place you used to open up has a problem with it. They're all, all different, but they're all infected in some area. And I don't know if you've noticed that just because you get born again, that doesn't necessarily clean out those rooms. It doesn't just stop your family history. You have all that momentum still moving. It doesn't just stop fears. It doesn't just stop the garbage that you put into a room. It doesn't stop those things automatically. Yes, God can rescue you out of some of those things, but you've got these closets. You've got these rooms that when you open up have to be addressed. And the first thing in terms of having a prepared mind is just to understand that I'm still affected by my former ignorance. So if you can't say that out loud, then you're going to have trouble really navigating, moving forward, you just have to be willing to say, yes, I lived in this former ignorance and yes, I am rescued, I'm ransomed, but I'm still living in this situation. Yes, I've been called out of the darkness into the marvelous light, but but I still have this former ignorance affecting my life. It affects my relationships, my judgment, my sexuality, emotions, intellect, parenting, my tongue, my views of money, family, work, pleasure. It affects all those areas. And so part of preparing your mind, maybe the first part, is is humbly admitting that every room in your mind needs renovation. If I was Rob Campbell, first of all, I'd have a sweat towel up here and I'd be sweating by now. But I would say, you know, turn to your neighbor and say, every room in your mind needs renovation. Renovation. That, that's see that every room in everyone's mind here still needs renovation. Some of you are going, yeah, I know you should see the rooms I have to deal with over here. So every room we have to have the humility A prepared mind is a humble mind saying I need renovation. I need a restoration in, in every area of my mind. Secondly, humility prepares your mind by causing you to carefully weigh your own thoughts. God says, you know, this verse, Isaiah 55, He's saying to His own people who are following after Him. So God's speaking to His own congregation, and He says to His congregation, Hey, your thoughts, they're not mine. Hey, your ways, they're they're not always mine. He's not talking about people who are outside, He's saying to His own congregation, So, a prepared mind can humbly say, You know what? My first thought isn't necessarily following after God's thought. It takes humility. Your first thought isn't equal to the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, just in humility, you have to say, Okay. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to have a thought. That's fine. But I'm just not going to let that be the, 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 the absolute truth. I might have some family momentum. I might have some fears. I might have a bunch of other things affecting my first thought. So I just want to humbly take that thought captive and judge it against the truth before I move forward. A, a humble mind, a humility prepares your mind by leading you to an ever increasing hunger for the word of God. You, you prepare your mind because you have a humble mind and you say, OK, if I can't trust my first word, whose word can I trust? And Jesus says it in John 17 when he's praying for his disciples, he's saying, God, I'm going to send them into the world and they're going to be attacked. And so I want you to sanctify them by what does he say? The truth. And what's the truth? Your word Is the truth. Paul says it in Ephesians 5. We're washing. God's washing the bride of Christ with the word of God. So, So you have to have a humble mind that that understands. First of all, even though I've been born again, I still have issues in my mind. I still have this stuff going through my mind that needs to be addressed. Secondly, I understand that my first thought isn't automatically just the work of the Holy Spirit could be the exact opposite. And finally, so I can have a prepared mind, I'm going to begin to wash my mind with the word of God. So I then know how to navigate the situations that are out before me. And I've always loved this couple of verses put together in Proverbs 26, four and five, where. The, the the wise man says this in twenty six do not answer a fool according to his folly or you will be like him yourself. You ever been in that situation? Just you start down the argument road. and You're like, I'm as big a fool as you are, buddy. I just sort of got down at the bottom level with you and I, I, I would have been better off if I just hadn't even said anything. That's probably would have been better. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself. That's verse four. Verse five. Answer a fool according to his folly. Or he will be wise in his own eyes. Well, which is it? I mean, here it is in the Bible. In the first one, you're supposed to not answer the fool. In the second one, you are supposed to answer the fool. Well, which one is it? See, it's a wisdom issue. Can't just say it's this this overlays every possible situation and because you can't take a Bible verse and overlay it in every possible situation that we face. Some situations you can, but many of them you can't. You have to have the word of God sort of coursing through your mind to say, well, which, which action should I be taking now? Is this a place of, of nonconformity or is this a, a place of conformity? Is this a place of separation or is this a place of participation? Am I going to be a foreigner in this particular place or am I going to try to be a citizen in this Particular situation, it, it takes a lot of of the word of God sort of coursing through your mind to help navigate those situations. Most of, you know, I have a daughter who's 19, a son who's 21. And so a few years back, you know, we have to navigate education. What's the right situation? Zachary and Morgan were in a private Christian school. We had to navigate that. And then once they get out of eighth grade, what, what should they do for high school? Zachary went to Hoggard High School, a public high school. Morgan went to Coastal Christian, a private Christian high school. Can I just go to the Bible and say, well, this is clearly, no, I can't. We've got to exercise some wisdom. Every parent has to do that for their child. They, they understand the, the options out there. They understand their child. They have to navigate those particular situations and say, you know, I, I'm praying. I'm hoping the word of God is informing my situation. And I'm looking at the situation and I'm trying to navigate that situation for myself and for my child. When I was the area director for Young Life, where you have a ministry uh, primarily to high school students, there was no particular rule or regulation about this, but here I am at, well, I was 25 when I started and 40 when I ended. So the whole time I'm old enough to drink. It's no problem if I want to have a beer, if I want to have a glass of wine. That's not a big issue in my mind. I don't think you can go to the Bible and say it's absolutely, you cannot do that. But should I? I mean, if I'm out at Outback Steakhouse and I'm throwing some down, is that good? you see me out there? Don't come out on Monday night. Some of us out there on Monday night. I mean, there's no rule. There's no There's no absolute certainty at that moment what's the best thing to do. And so you have to have the, the word of God sort of coursing through and saying, I just don't want my first reaction to necessarily mean that's the Holy Spirit. It may not be. And so I just don't drink. It just is easier for me. Just didn't want that to be any kind of barrier For a high school kid seeing the Lord. Everyone have to make my decision. No. But you see, you you have to navigate all the time. You have those decisions to navigate. And you have to understand that you still have a lot of ignorance in your mind that has to be addressed. You have to open those doors up. You have to shovel some stuff out. You got to shovel in the word of God. You really got to have a prepared mind, a prepared mind. I think, is one that starts with humility. Secondly. Or let me, let me make one more point there. A, hum, a humble mind prepares your mind, prepares your mind by making you more likely to seek the advice of others. How do you know which way to go? So often you should just call someone. Proverbs 24, 6, for waging war, you need guidance for victory. Many advisors. I mean, I can't tell you, I I hope this happens to you and and you do it. I can't tell you how many times people call me or I call them and say, hey, I just need to run this by you. Seems like a right situation or this seems like an appropriate response. But I know me and I just need to have somebody else sort of weigh in on it. So a prepared mind understands, hey, I'm going to I'm waging war for my soul and I can't do it by myself. So I'm going to have somebody else enter in to the thinking process with me. So that's the first point. The second point from chapter two, verse eleven is separation. Chapter two, verse eleven. Let's look at that together. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners or foreigners and exiles to abstain or to separate yourself from the passions of. Of your flesh, Peter understands there's clearly a need for separation. Yet just notice in this passage, the greatest place of separation. The greatest place of need of separation is not between you and your neighbor. It's not between you and your community. The greatest need for separation is between you and you. (laughs) that's where Peter is saying, hey, the real battle is happening in your heart. It's really happening in your soul. There's these old passions. There's these former ignorances that are still influencing the way you feel, the way you act, the way you behave. And we need to have some separation inside. We need to have some separation from your old self to your new self. The great evangelist D.L. Moody once said, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than any man I know. And my guess is you can say the same, can you? I mean, yes, there are some issues out there or some people out there that may be causing a problem. But I would venture to guess that your biggest problems are problems that you have against yourself. The issues that are in your own mind, that are in your own heart, and there needs to be some separation, Peter is telling us. So just listen to the way Paul talks about this same idea. I take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. I take captive every thought. Why? Because I've got thoughts that are trying to take me captive. That's the war. I got thoughts that come into my mind and what they want to do is just to completely captivate me. It happens all the time. And so I'm in a war. I've either got to take it captive or it's going to take me captive. Not it's not all lot of neutrality on some of these issues. Paul says this, I beat my body and make it my slave. Why? Well, because I've got a body that would like to rule over me. Paul, the hot donut sign is on. Let's roll, baby. And you, you know this, You, if you don't, I shouldn't tell you, I guess. But you roll through the line at Krispy Kreme. I've done this like once a long time ago <laughs> with some friends in the car. And... Uh, Hey, we just want a half dozen. Well, you know how much a half dozen hot donuts are like, I don't know, five fifty. How much is a dozen? Five sixty. So what? I mean, yeah, okay. give me the dozen. Sir, you don't have any friends in your car today. You see, I have a body that would like to rule over me. And it has some measure of success. You have thoughts that would like to rule over you. You have a body that would like to rule over you. You are in a war for your soul. And so there's some, some places that in our flesh we have to say no to. And notice in verse 11, Peter is a pastor. He's saying, beloved, I urge you. He's looking. He's looking. He's trying to put their, their heads in his hands and say, I love you. I don't want you to be caught in the passions of your old flesh. I, I want you to break free from those things. I don't want you to be captivated by your every thought anymore. I don't want, to, want your body to be really controlling you anymore like it was. I, I, I'm urging you to move in a, in a different direction. You hear that heart from, from Peter. And he says, don't let the passions. This word we've looked at a number of times. In the Greek, it's, it's called epithemia. And it means over-desires. Uh, you, you have, a, uh, you have a, a feeling, you have a desire, but it's an epi-desire. It, the, the desire may be a good thing, but it's become a big thing. It may be a good thing, it's become a God thing. I have a, a desire in some ways that has become an over-desire, a desire to be loved. It's a good desire. It's not a good over-desire. It's that, that can be, you can become captive to that. And you're a slave now to that desire. Have a desire for health or influence or family or food or wisdom or money. Nothing wrong with those as desires until they become controlling. You can make service to God an over-desire, an epi-desire. And you can think that because you're doing all these things, God's got your back. And really, you're just serving your service and not the Lord. A Christian writer named Sheldon Van Alken writes this. I was once caught up in the mood and action of the 1960s. Christ, I thought, would surely be pleased with my protests. But the movement... Whatever its ideals gradually pushed Jesus to the rear. The movement, not God, became first. I now think that making God secondary, which in the end is to make him nothing, is the mortal danger of politics and social action. So you can have a good desire even for service to the church that becomes an epi desire. And so service becomes your savior instead of Jesus becoming your savior. And I'm going to I'm going to take next week to just talk about this war against our soul. Because it's such an important topic, but I want to just point out one one place this morning, one one way you can get separation inside in the war against your soul. And the one thing I just want to mention here briefly is worship. Remember the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter one, he says, we exchanged the truth of God for a lie and we've worshiped. Created things rather than the created, so we have a dis- depraved mind. And so our problem is that, is that every person that's been born is born as a worshiper. They will worship. That's not an option. The option is what you will worship. And the problem, the sinful problem, is that we worship a created thing rather than the created thing. That's what Paul is telling us in Romans 1. And so we fix our our, we are fixated on some created object as, as people who are apart from God, something made some person, some emotion, some need. And those things become our saviors. And now that we've been called out of the darkness, we have a different object of worship. And worship is intended to sort of pry you loose from those old passions I don't know if you've felt this way, but uh, I'm sure it's happened to you at some point. You sit for a long time, not like during a sermon, but other times. Maybe you're at your desk. Maybe you, do you ever cross your legs and put your feet sort of underneath your desk and you sit there an hour. What happens? Foot falls asleep. You wake up, you are know, like dragging your, you know, foot along. Maybe when you fall asleep at night, you know, somehow you roll over on your arm, your hand or your arm falls asleep. I woke up one time when I was in high school like this, and I guess I had just rolled over. But, you know, when your arm is asleep, it feels like someone else's arm. And as far as I could tell, I went to bed by myself. So I wake up with someone else's arm across my chest. And I went, yeah! And I threw my arm off the bed, and I went tumbling after it. Really an attractive picture. But what what had happened? Some I had somehow had a pressure point and the the information from my brain was not traveling the the nerve circuit and it wasn't getting anywhere. So there was just a a complete breakdown in the communication. Or when your hand or arm begins to wake up, you always have that same tingling feeling that that's your nerve cells not being able to send the information correctly. So, you get this little tingling sensation until that pressure point's completely off, and then you say, Okay, good, good information here. And you see what an over desire does? It puts pressure somewhere. And an over desire puts pressure, and now, now the information coming from our head, the Christ, Christ, cannot get to ourselves. And so, you have a, a hunger, you have a A need, you have a passion and it and it puts pressure somewhere in your life and and it pinches off that communication and and you can't hear or you can't hear as well from Christ and what he's trying to say. That's what an over desire does, and what worship does is it opens you up. I hope that's the way you feel here on Sunday mornings. I'm sure you've come into this place numb to the things of the Lord. Have you not? You're coming because you're supposed to or whatever, but you're numb. Hey, I've come in sometimes that way. And something about worship begins to reorient your thinking. You're like, okay. All right, I'm, think, I'm thinking right again. I'm getting the circulation. I'm beginning to, to, to reorient myself. That's why so much of my prayer is the same prayer. Just we need to be reoriented. I've, I've been and I've fallen asleep out here and I'm coming in. And God, what I need you to do is just relieve all those pressure points with worship so I can, I can get a, a clean piece of information from you. That's what I need from you right now. And then hopefully you go out with greater confidence, with greater joy. I was thinking about this just in the first song that we read. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose. And then just sort of this, um, I don't want to say defiance because that sounds negative, but this determination, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'm never. No, I'll never forsake. You see, that's helpful for me because I feel like my soul gets shaken out there and I need. I need to be reminded that God's never going to forsake my soul. And that opens me up to have greater determination to really follow after him. Worship is intended to do that for us. Second, last thing, the prep- participation. So we have a, a preparation of our mind. We have a separation of our old ways. We have the beginning of the cleaning out of our closet, so to speak. And then verse 12, there is a participation. Look, that, look at this. We're supposed to live among the Gentiles. You're supposed to live close enough that they can actually see your life. Verse 12. Peter wants his congregation and understands that his congregation should live as an integrated integrated into their community. Close enough so that when they see, even though they may say you're evil. Eventually, they're going to give glory and that word there means weight. They will see it and they'll say, yeah, but there was some weightiness to this person's life and it was about God. That's the idea. That's what Peter is saying. You need to live integrated in a way that they see your honorable conduct. And even though they may dislike you, even though they may spit on your face at some point, they're going to say, no, there was something weighty about that person's life. Well, who do you think Peter had in mind as the prime example? I mean, the incarnation. Jesus became flesh, John 1, 14. And what did he do? He lived among us. I love how uh, Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. He Jesus moved into the neighborhood. He was part of the hood here on the world. And so he moves into the hood and he just lives an integrated life. And you know what happened to Jesus? He, they spit on him. They said he was evil. But he brought weight he brought substance to the community. He brought the glory of God in by his life, by living an honorable life. And so Peter is asking us to do the same thing. See, the amazing thing about Advent, which we start next week, means the coming of God, the coming of Christ. That's one of the amazing parts about the gospel is that when God looked down and he saw that we we're in trouble, he didn't send down instructions. He came down. He didn't say, hey, follow this way. He came down and said, hey, follow me. He lived in an integrated way that you could follow after Christ. And Peter intends our movement to be the same. But unfortunately, we live in a a, a mostly weightless society. Let me read a quote from David Wells in his book. God in the wasteland it's one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless he has become unimportant he rests upon the world so inconsequentially as to not be noticeable those who assure the pollster of their belief in God's existence nonetheless consider him less interesting than television his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence his judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news. And his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. Peter's given the opposite instructions. You've got to live integrated. And your your, your life has to be so honorable that you give weight to the reality of God's existence. So if I were just giving a talk and not a sermon and we were all going to break up into small groups, that was my picture this morning. And we said, "Okay, you've heard this wonderful sermon, really incredible. um, And now you're going to break up into groups of eight or ten. You're going to have a discussion. This is these would be the discussion points I'd want you to have. You ready? So you pick off one. You can have it with your friend or your family. Where do you feel the tension in your life between separation and participation? Where do you feel that? I mean, I might have a great tension in an area you don't doesn't bother you. No, no matter to you, you might have a different one. Where do you feel that tension between separation and participation? Are you hum- Secondly, are you humble in your think humble enough in your thinking that you regularly assume your first thoughts are Not pretty much God's thoughts. Are you humble enough in your thinking that you just recognize, hey, my first thoughts, I'm pretty much not thinking that's necessarily God's first thoughts. Third, is there an over desire in your life that's cutting off circulation? Something's still in the closet, something's still in the room, and it's pressing down. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm just saying it's pressing down and it's causing you to really not get information from God in the right way. What is that? Finally, if, and I thought particularly if you're a college student or a midlife person. And then I started thinking I was mowing the lawn yesterday, really vacuuming up the leaves in my lawn. I thought I'm a midlifer, and then I thought I'm forty nine. Maybe I'm a little past midlife. But if you're a college student or if you're in the midlife place, and of course, everyone could ask this question. Does your conduct give weight to God's reality? You're a college student. You're, I'm not worried about whether you're integrated. <laughs> I know you're integrated. I'm worried if your conduct gives weight To the reality of God. Or are you just weightless? See, I I see some college students here. They're back and they're going, man, I wish I'd left at 10. Um, But they're going back today. And my question is, when you go back, are you really just like a feather? I mean, you believe, but you're weightless. Your conduct is not displaying the reality of God. If you're 50, you don't have as much time left. Right, when you go and integrate yourself in the community, are you giving weight to the reality of God? Or are you just weightless out there? Let's pray together. Lord, we, um, we just covered a few points here this morning. But I trust that they're the points that you want to have covered and providentially you have used Peter as our pastor this morning to speak to every every heart here. Every every Christian brother or sister here has this difficulty of navigation. And so help us, Lord, help us to see ourselves, help us to see you, help us to know the way in which we should go. Or would you bless the, the time, the talents, and the money that we have to give to you today for the multi- multiplication of your glory and of your weight into our community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.